Today, uh, the World Church has deemed this creation Sabbath. Why do we need a Sabbath dedicated to creation? And I would propose to you it's because the idea of creation is getting uh, a lot of doubt, a lot of flack, a lot of people in the scientific community are very quick to say, no, 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 that doesn't work. Uh, that is far from reality. Anybody who is a thinking individual, any scholar, anybody who is in the world of academia will tell you creation is not the model. And if you want to be taken seriously, you better push that off to the side and you better adopt evolution because this is science. We need to follow the science wherever it leads, so they like to say. And so they don't even talk about it as an evolutionary theory. It's more presented today as the evolutionary facts. Yes. But I'm here to remind you this morning on this creation Sabbath that it is not a fact, but it is still a theory. But sadly, many are caving to the pressure. And it's not just out there in the world of academia. I mean, it is, but it's crept into Seventh-day Adventist academics as well, which is concerning. And many of you, if you have not already been confronted with, at some point in your career, especially if you're going the medical route, will be confronted with this idea. And so my question for you this morning is, are you an evolutionist? Do you like that idea? Are you okay with that idea? And is it worth caving to the pressure? It seems to be the expected belief all over the place. Time Magazine, I don't know why I just grabbed Time, but evolution's Big Bang, How Man Evolved, Big Daddy. Everywhere you look, there's this theory being pushed, pushed, pushed. How life began, how we became human, how man became man, how apes became human. I mean, this is very flattering, isn't it? I mean, rather than coming from a creator at his hand, forming you in the dust of the ground, we rather cling to the idea that we came from worms, from tiny little organisms, and then we finally made our way up the chain. And you look beautiful this morning. You're not as apish as you once were. Your ears have calmed down just a bit over billions and billions of years, and your nose is more shapely than it once was. Hopefully none of you have that blue bottom. No, we won't go there. It's not a very uplifting thing to think about, is it? That's your roots? That's where you came from? You look in any of these magazines and textbooks, you'll likely see a picture like this. I mean, really, the line goes a lot further to get to this point, but this is just that little progression between monkey and ape and, well, man. And the idea that this is science. We study birds, we study wildlife, we see the variations, 
This is evolution. This is science. This is fact. Dating back to Charles Darwin and his work published in 1859, which is interesting when you study the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And when we started coming onto the scene, when the Sabbath started to get more publicity, the devil is saying, no, 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 we have to do something about all this. And so in 1859, on the origin of species, and even the papacy seems to try to appease both camps. Have you noticed this? Pope Francis, his words, not mine. Evolution is not inconsistent with the notion of creation. This was just seven years ago, uh, or it'll be seven years this coming Wednesday. Reading more of it says, when we read about creation in Genesis, we run the risk of imagining God as a magician with a magic wand able to do everything. But this is not so, Francis says. He created human beings and let them develop according to the internal laws that he gave to each one so that they would reach their fulfillment. This is an interesting quotation. So let's be clear. God is not powerful enough to create by his word, as the Genesis account in Scripture states very clearly. No, he's not powerful enough to do that because this would make God a magician. Is that asking too much of God? Are we putting God in a box? Let's not get carried away. To be clear, the Pope is saying God is limited in what he can do. So he created human beings. He allowed us to develop, to reach our fulfillment. So let's think this through. What God was powerless to do, we can then accomplish given billions and billions of years. And if so, doesn't that make us capable or more capable of doing something that God is powerless to do? And if that is in fact the case, then why are we bothering to worship God anyway? We really should be worshiping ourselves. Look what we have done. Give yourselves a pat on the back. We're here. We've arrived. He goes on, evolution in nature is not opposed to the notion of creation because evolution presupposes the creation of being, that beings evolve. So presuppose or assumes the creation of beings that evolve. So God created, but then it was evolution then after. And so now we happily have both. Creation evolution, they work together. They're not opposed to one another. Now, to be clear, there's a difference between micro and macro evolution. Micro evolution speaks of variety given within a given species. And we see that all over the place. We see that in the birds and the warbler world. We see it in the dogs and the cats and the various species, and now they're mixing every kind of dog with poodle so it doesn't shed, and the list goes on. But macro evolution, there's some limits to how far you can go with that dog variety. I mean, I mixed a poodle with a warbler, so I have a 
flying, I don't know, flying poodle? There's some crazy names of dogs. I guess, I guess I could have done some research. We had a cockapoo at one time. That's not a nice name. So can I make a poodle that flies? Can I make a poodle that can breathe underwater? Can I make a poodle over time, maybe if you just give me enough billions of years, this is the size of a whale, and can, I mean, really? This is macro, this is big jumps, these are big leaps. And forget the poodle. How much have we spent in this time and age flying all over the place? Where, when we had wings, why did we ever give those up? Wouldn't that be pretty cool? I mean, I'm going to go fly back over to, I don't know, Colorado for a hike, and then I'm going to fly back this afternoon or whatever. But this idea of the papacy is not new. Traditional Catholic teaching has not been at odds with evolution for some time. In 1950, Pope Pius XII proclaimed that there was no opposition between evolution and Catholic doctrine. That's back in 1950. In 1996, St. John Paul II endorsed Pius' statement. So this idea that you can have both, creation and evolution. No matter your convictions, we have a place for you, says the Catholic Church. Friends, let me just ask you, is doctrine something like a buffet where we can just pick and choose? Now, I love a good buffet. I mean, there are just tables all over the size of this room with every food that you can imagine. And there's, there's a real, you know, you don't just grab anything here. This is a big deal. I have to map this out. I have to plan carefully. I only, my stomach can only handle so much. So first, I just peruse the whole buffet. What do I want to take in today? Oh, that looks pretty good. That looks good, too. Huh, I'm not sure. And then if I'm really serious about this, I might even just take little tastes of everything because the last thing I want is to have too much of the wrong thing on my plate. But then again, who cares? I'll just set that to the side and I'll go back. Is that how doctrine works? Is it just a buffet? Can I pick and choose the doctrines that make sense to me and say, I like this one, I'll take this one, I'll take some of this. No, I don't want any of that. Is it possible that we can just have a little of both? Or are these completely opposite and opposing ideas? And not only that, it's almost more like Jenga blocks. Anybody play Jenga? All these blocks of three and three and three and three, and you're looking for the loose one, and you want to pull it out and put it on top and on top and on top and on top. I would propose to you, rather than a buffet, our doctrines are all set up in such a way that if you pull out one the whole set falls down because they are interlinked. They are interconnected. It's almost more like dominoes. You, you do something to one and it affects the next and the next and the next and the next and the next. And before you know it, the whole thing comes crashing down. And the devil doesn't really care which of the doctrines he can get you to doubt in. But if I can get you to doubt in just one, that is my entry point. That is my entering wedge. And that will create this, this dissonance that I say, you know, I've accepted this, but now that doesn't make sense. And the devil says, uh-huh. 
and now that that doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense, and that and it's that downward slippery slope to this whole thing must be a wash. But the idea still exists. Do you believe in creation? Yes. Do you believe in evolution? Yes. Do you ever say no? Yes. Evolution. Define the process by which different kinds of living organisms are thought to have developed and diversified from earlier forms during the history of the Earth. Secondly, the gradual development of something, especially from a simple to a more complex form. This is how we came to be, says the world. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I would propose to you this morning, you can't have a little bit of both. Either you came into existence from the hand of God, or you came through some evolutionary process and you're just a little bit higher than the apes. It's either Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, or over billions and billions of years, we evolved. And instead of God being the beginning of your family tree, it's something more like this. And somehow, the, the unknowns that we have a hard time explaining, if we just tack on billions and billions and billions of years. Son, you better clean your room. Mom, don't worry about it. I have a theory. Over billions and billions and billions of years, the dirty laundry in my room, all the things that are disorganized on my desk, everything that's in disarray, even the mud on the carpet, given billions of years, They'll take care of themselves. Honey, can we clean the garage? Honey, don't worry about it. Let's just give it a couple billion years. Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You take out this idea that God is no longer our creator, then you might as well read the verse backwards. You are not worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you, are not, you did not create all things, and by your will they did not exist, nor were they created. It was billions and billions of years. Send us a thank you card. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. I mean, this is incredible. By his own word, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33, verse 6. But evolutionists say something quite different. 
Scientific evidence shows that the physical and behavioral traits shared by all people originated from ape-like ancestors and evolved over a period of approximately six million years. Okay, now it's six million years. Before it was billions of years. Whatever. Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image. Not in the image of the ape, but in our image, in our likeness. I like that picture better. I like the idea of having a God who cares for me, loves me, has a plan and purpose for me, as opposed to this idea that I'm just a little bit higher than the apes, that I evolved over time. There is no plan or purpose for my life. Therefore, I must live, live it up to the best and to the fullest because this is it. This is all I have. This is all I get. Review and Herald, February 11, 1902. It says, All heaven took a deep and joyful interest in the creation of the world and of man. Human beings were a new and distinct order. They were made in the image of God. Wow. New, distinct. The universe is watching. Hebrews 11, verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. We could go to the verse, Is anything too hard for God? And the creation story resounds, Not at all. So let's look at some of the pitfalls to Darwin's theory. Can we do that? Some of the pitfalls to Darwin's theory. Pitfall number one, still no proof of non-life generating life. Oh, oops. That's kind of a thing. That's annoying. Let's just not talk about it. Darwin called it the warm little pond. Okay. Pitfall number two. Cells are far more complex than Darwin conceived. He thought it was a few elementary components that could be easily assembled. Wrong. We know now that there's information processing, processing, storage, retrieval, artificial languages, and their decoding systems, air detection, correction, and proofreading for quality control, digital data, embedded technology, transportation, and distribution systems, automated parcel addressing, self-reproducing robotic manufacturing plants, all of this is taking place in the cell. And he thought he found something so small, this is it. This is the basic building blocks. These are the Legos, and if we just take the Legos, not true. We find that within the cell, there's a universe within the universe. Kind of a big deal. Pitfall number three, everything we know about DNA indicates that it programs a species to remain within the limits of its own general type. So you can just kiss that idea of having wings goodbye, at least for now. The gills over billions of years are not going to form for those scuba divers out there, I'm sorry. 
Pitfall number four, Darwin assumed more fossil findings would fill missing links of mutating species. Oh no, 162 years later, we still haven't found them. This is a quote taken from The Origin of Species, page 289. The number of intermediate and trans transitional links between all living and extinct species must have been inconceivably great. But assuredly, if this theory be true, such have lived upon the earth. Wow. Even just 120 years after his work, we have a fourth of a million fossil species, but scientists are still looking, and they're looking today for this inconceivably great number of intermediate and transitional links, and they're just not there. Pitfall number five. No good answers for the Cambrian explosion in which fossils of a bewildering variety of complex life forms appear suddenly without predecessors. They're just not there, and then they're there, and there's not all those links in between. Not to mention the fact that how can you always go in a transitional state? Look at the complexity of your body. Which should be developed first? Lungs? Heart? The ability to think and reason and find food? Your liver? Your bowels? All of these things. Which can you not have for billions of years and still be okay? We'll put the heart on the back burner for now. We don't need the heart. Good luck with that. We don't need the lungs, says COVID. Good luck with that. Psalm 139, 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You look at the complexity of the eye and the eyeball and what is there and how it works and how it functions, and you're going to tell me that came by accident? It's not possible. So let's look at this. How does, the evolu how does evolution impact our view of various things? And I'm going to put up the part in blue there. It's going to change. But first I want to look, how does it impact evolution, our view of God. Let's put a few things up there. God may be loving, but he's not very powerful. We already talked about that because it took him millions of years to create us. So he's doing the best that he can. Bless his heart, we say in the South. Secondly, God is not all-knowing because he did not foresee the pain and heartache that comes with evolving over millions of years. You know how much death there is over evolving millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years? How much heartache there is? Hey, I was going to try and be a thing, but I don't have a heart. And since he didn't know, he's not responsible, apparently. He's not all-knowing. Maybe he's not all-God. Maybe he's not all what we thought him to be. Makes God very impersonal as well. 
when the millions of years, or when in the millions of years, did God decide he wanted to have a personal relationship with the human race? As an ape, I'm not really interested. Go back further, I don't know, these millipedes on the ground, no, not interested. But, you know, you, you work your way up. At what point, you know, when the ape is doing this whole thing in the picture, at what point does God say, okay, now I'm going to enter in? Now you are fearfully and wonderfully evolved. How does evolution impact scripture? Let's look at that for a moment. First of all, the Bible evolved just like life evolved. It's kind of, they both go together because let's stop and think about it. If the Bible has been around all this time, thousands of years, they weren't as advanced back then as we are today. Just like you think your parents' idea and ways of thinking, well, they're not as evolved as my way of thinking is today. That's why parents are always wrong. I'm always right. The Bible writers are more simple in their thinking than we are today. Is the Bible evolved? The truth evolved and still is evolving. Is that a thing? Does truth evolve over time? Because I hear it often, I say, well, that was back then. But things are different today. That was the truth for then, but it's no longer the truth for today. That is archaic truth, and this is the truth for today. Does truth evolve? Does truth change? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is Jesus evolving? Is Jesus changing? Does he need billions of years too? It's problematic. And so this idea of trying to meld Scripture with evolution and have a little bit of both, it doesn't mix. It doesn't work. To say that it does, I have to rip out so many pages of my Bible, it'd be a lot smaller to carry around, that's for sure. But would it cease to be the Bible? I believe it would. And when you start with an idol, and then you look in Scripture to support your idol, that's the wrong way to study the Bible. God's Word should not have to conform to my idol. And when I do that, things very quickly fall apart. Rather, I need to conform to God's Word. This is the truth. And so how does evolution impact Scripture? Ultimately, the Bible loses its power and authority. I mean, after all, if there's literally hundreds of verses, if not thousands, of creation in these pages, and if they're all false, why am I going to waste my time with all the other Scripture promises in there that they're probably false too? Take out the one Jenga block and it all falls over. Forget it. I'm done. I'm gone. It makes God a liar. When in Genesis he says, it is good. What's good? All scripture that names God as the creator is inaccurate. Let's go to another one. How does evolution impact the Sabbath? <laughs> oh. First of all, where did the idea of the Sabbath come from? Is there any place else besides creation that we get the Sabbath? Is there any place else besides 
this account that we get the week. I mean, we can look out there and we can say, okay, where do we get the year from? Well, the year is one time that the earth travels around the sun, and so that's one year, that's how we get our seasons. Good, science. Where do we get the month or the month? That's one time that the, the moon rotates around the earth. Got it, science. Where do we get the day? Okay, well, that's one time that the earth spins around, and then, boom, got our day. Where do we get the week? It's where Orion does a somersault and slams down. I don't know. I can't find it. Unless I turn here. And people have been over backwards trying to say, what's the seven-day week about? We can flip this around. We can change it. Five days on and two days off. Now, let's just erase that all together. And there's even in recent history, Hewlett Packard tried to change the work week. And, and other people in ancient times tried to change. No, we're going to work our people harder. There is a rhythm that God, the creator, placed in us. These sevens. There's a term for it, but I'm not the scientist and I didn't write it down. But we are made to be in this rhythm of work and rest and work and rest. Yes, every day we rest. But the Sabbath, were you here the other day when I talked about the blue zones? Ten years longer they live on average? Rest, built in, the Sabbath. And so it's not from the creation at creation. Sorry, I'm going back to the other. How does evolution impact the Sabbath, if it's not from the creator at creation, it's just another day. Right? Essentially, it erases the Sabbath. It's just another day. It's not a sign of resting in his free gift of salvation. It's certainly not necessary or worth dying over. It just kind of ceases to exist. There's no creation weak. There really is no weak devil tries to name all the, the days after all these other things that have nothing to do with creation. But go look at all the languages of the world. And you'll see Sabbath imprinted on the seventh day. How does evolution impact sin? Well, <clears throat> evolution makes evil good because that is the means by which we are Progressing. This is just how it goes. You know, my kid died because he was dumbing down the species. And we can't have that. Survival of the fittest. The wolf eats the deer that's got a bad leg. Sorry, deer, that's just how it goes. This one had a, some kind of a fungus and it died off. Well, that's good. That's what we need. How does evolution impact sin? If God created over millions of years, what is sin? At what point is the human race even held accountable? Man, I'm burning in hell and I hadn't even developed a brain yet. That's not fair. You don't have the fall in the Garden of Eden. And if there's no fall, then there is no guilt that needs to be remedied. 
See the domino effect? How does evolution impact the judgment? Because God is our creator, he's also our judge. I have dominion over things that I create, don't you? I mean, if I spend a lot of time building this, I built this mammoth picnic table. You can fit two large families around the thing. It weighs literally probably 500 pounds. This is ridiculous. I don't even want to tell you how much it costs in lumber. I had to take out a loan on my house. But I made it. I bolted the thing together. I stained it. This thing is supposed to last forever. It won't. But doesn't that mean I get to choose what I do with it? I mean, if I want to burn it, can I burn it? If I want to etch my name in it, can't I do that too? Why? Because it's yours. It's, well, it's mine. I created it. And it's the same with your kids that come home. I mean, you don't have kids, but, you know, they scribble a thing when you were a kid, and you're like, look at what I did, Daddy. And you're like, what, what do you want to do with it? Let's put it on the fridge. Okay. Let's throw it away. I don't need it anymore. Are you sure? Why do we ask? Because it's theirs. Because they made it. They created it. So, how does evolution impact the judgment? As an evolutionist, why is there a judgment? A judgment of what? By whom? What is there to judge? Is it because we do not evolve fast enough that we're now in trouble? Who would have the right to judge me anyway? How does evolution impact the three angels' messages of Revelation 14? Well, why do I need to fear God and give glory to him and worship him if he did not create me? That's the reason it gives. The hour of his judgment has come. Well, we already established there is no judgment. If he is not my creator, then the first angel's message is based on a lie. And if that's the case, then why do I need to pay attention to the second and the third? They're probably lies too. How does evolution impact salvation? If there's no sin, if there's no judgment, then there's really no need for salvation. I need to be saved from what? I'm fine. I'm evolving. Jesus merely becomes our example, not our atonement. And if I believe in Jesus at all, he did not come to die in my place, but simply to manifest his love. That's great. He's another loving guy. Add him to the list. Christ came simply to speed up evolution. Maybe I could run with that for a while. And really, why do we need salvation when we just keep getting better and better? I don't need somebody out there to save me. I'm in the process of saving myself. I mean, just look back 100 years. Look what we've done. We have plumbing. We have running water. Now I can just speak. Alexa, turn on living room. Turn on music. This is evolution. I don't need God. I'm my own God. I speak and things come into existence. Let there be light. I don't have anything against Alexa. She's at home at my house. <laughs> Somebody might be listening to this later and their lights might come on. I don't know. 
well, Pastor, you need to get rid of Alexa because the Russians are listening. Friends, somebody can listen with this thing all the time. You have them. I have them. They're tracing everywhere that we go. We can't run. We can't hide. It is what it is. I'm getting off topic. Okay. <laughs> How does evolution impact the resurrection of Christ. Well, if he didn't create by his word, the way Genesis says, then how does he have the power to come down as resurrect Christ? Perhaps Christ's resurrection will take billions of years to come to completion as well. And how does evolution impact the second coming? If God did not create by his word, as the Bible says in Genesis, then how is he simply going to come at the end of time and resurrect people and recreate people? If he can't create the first time, he can't recreate the second time. If it took him billions of years to get you to be you, then the second coming is like, I guess, the great reset and another couple billion years, then you will be you better? Like, what? I'm confused. Or is he going to start another process of millions of years to get us to the New Jerusalem? How does evolution impact our view of ourselves? We're not created in God's image, but in that of an ape. How does that impact how you view yourself? Now you know why you like bananas. I don't know. I mean, life is hard. Life is tough. But it is a whole lot easier when I know that God has a plan and a purpose for my life, that he has promises for me, that I have a hope of a better future, and that he will see me through this great controversy. As opposed to, you're on your own, there's no help out there, there's nobody to pray to, it's you, you, and only you, and when you die, your body goes back to the dust, goes back to the worms, the process starts over, and that's it. It undermines our value and our purpose. Now I have to look inside for God. And we become self-sufficient, become our own God. And that becomes pretty impersonal, pretty empty. How about this one? How does evolution impact how we treat other people? Survival of the fittest and natural selection. We're on a college campus. There is some element of natural selection. But survival of the fittest? All is fair, guys, in love and war. She looks like she's about to date him. <laughs> Sorry. I just happen to be a better cheater than you. Sorry. My grades are better than yours. I win, you lose. Sorry. I mean, so much for helping your fellow man. Where does that fit into the evolutionary mind frame? Not to mention a beautiful sunset. What, get, what, what is it when you go hiking and you're in nature and you just, well, you feel closer to God. That's what it is. But the evolutionists will say, no, no, no. Why is there beauty in a flower? Why is there, you know, I go to the ocean and I, I see the waves crashing on the beach. What does that do for the evolutionary model and for me personally? 
No, it's survival of the fittest. Natural selection. Feelings of superiority because I have more wealth and I have more power. I am a, a higher, more elevated individual than you are. So you really need to be subservient to me. I'm big business. You're a peon. I control the events of this world. You do not. Could this possibly lead to ethnic cleansing and the improvement of the human species? Did I say could? Or has it? Yeah, somebody said did. Hitler's secretary, Christa Schroeder, speaks often in her memoirs that Hitler spoke of human evolution. Why? Because that's a great way to calm a conscience that's saying, what are you doing? I'm doing the human species a favor. That's what I'm doing. This idea that we're getting better and better, and the German people are the best, so we need to take charge of the world. It doesn't matter how we do it or what we do to other people. This is all part of the evolutionary process. This is about protecting the species. And so, yes, evolution affects how we treat other people. I thought it was just something at the buffet. I could take it or leave it. But it sounds like creation is a little bit of a bigger deal, doesn't it? it sounds pretty foundational. Creation is a big deal because it speaks of how we are grounded in God's word. It helps us to understand the great controversy and sin and the judgment, the plan of salvation, the second coming, how we're to treat others, and faith in God that can recreate us today. Because I don't know where God is in the evolutionary model. Psalm 51, verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I don't know about you, but I need the Creator God to change me again by His Word, to create in me something that I cannot create over billions and trillions of years, even if I could live that long. It's the Creator God that makes that change, He's the only one that can. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It doesn't say refurbished or fixed. Become new. Some of you may be familiar with Roger Morneau. He's no longer living. There's a picture of him being interviewed by... Uh, Doug Batchelor. Doug Batchelor looks a little different. That tells you a little bit the time frame we're talking about here. But he wrote a book called Trip into the Supernatural. It's not necessarily a warm and cozy book at all. In fact, it's a rather heavy read. Because in that, he talks about how he got, as a young adult, into spiritualism and became entrenched as a follower of Satan. And how over time he worked his way up in the system to where he was in the highest and, and kind of on the edges of some of these highest meetings of Satan with his angels. And if you want, you can discount the whole book. That's okay. 
But it's interesting what he has to say. And then, of course, it's his conversion experience, how he came out of that. But in the book, he discusses how Satan and his evil angels are going to lead men and women astray from God and his word and how they're going to do it and their game plan. I mean, sometimes we think Satan is just haphazard. Like he's just goofing off all the time. <laughs> Let's trip him. <laughs> Got him. No, he's a little bit more organized than that. For you and for me and for the planet at large. Here's a few quotations from his book. It says, the third point in the plan Lucifer and his spiritual counselors had was to, and you want to know what the first and second point is, you had to get the book, was to destroy the Bible without burning it. Continuing, it was very interesting because after the great general council, you didn't know that there was GC sessions for the devil, it was decided that Satan would tutor Charles Darwin personally. In setting up the principles of his theories of evolution, he was tutored by Lucifer himself, fallen Lucifer. I mean, I read that and I say, wow. It was understood that if a person was led to believe in the theory of evolution, it would, in his life, destroy completely the creation week of the Bible, the fall of man, and the plan of redemption. It would do away with it. Have we seen that happen? And then one of the Satanist priests raises their hands and asks about the Adventists. What are we going to do about this group of Adventists? To which the response came back that was this. The reason they cannot be brought under the great deception is the fact that Adventists observe the biblical Sabbath of creation and reverence the Creator that day. It makes it impossible for the spirits to deceive them. They are no... They are not ordinary people. And I read that and I say, wow. Here the Sabbath is a safeguard for God's people. Yet I see the Sabbath being treated lightly too. It's just another day. It's not really a holy day, it's just a holiday. But if we follow this biblical model, this directive, this safeguard, you know, we think of the Ten Commandments as the Ten Don'ts. No, they're the Ten Happiness Rules. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, follow the Ten Commandments. Nah, I don't believe in that. He's keeping me from all the fun. Okay, go have adultery with nine other women and find out how much fun you have. It will come to a screeching halt. Murder whoever you wish. Find out how much fun you have when you have life in prison. Lie to everybody you come in contact. You get the idea. And so when God gives us this thing called the Sabbath, even though we don't fully understand all the protective mechanisms in the Sabbath, it still exists. Even when I don't always know all of the nutrients that are in fruits and vegetables, when I eat them, it still exists. And when God says it's good for you, it's good for you. And so back to Roger Marneau, is this too far-fetched to be true? Or are we in a, a great controversy, and is the devil not seeking every means to destroy God's people? Day one, let there be light. I find it interesting that before there's the sun, there's light. 
a little reminder to all of us that God is the source of light, not the sun. Day two, let there be firmament. Day three, let there be dry land. Day four, let there be lights in the firmament. Day five, let the sea and creatures and every winged bird. Day six, let there be every land animal. And let us make man in our image. And then on day seven, God rested from his work. It says he blessed it. He turned his full attention towards it. He sanctified it. He made it holy by his divine presence. He rested as a divine example that we too can rest in that saving relationship with Jesus. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. A safeguard against the attacks of the enemy. The Sabbath is our weekly reminder of our Creator and our Redeemer, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, fully able to recreate in us His character and His likeness for His glory. So, friends, the deception is out there, and I'm quite convinced it's not going away. It's the pervading idea And in light of the great controversy, I wouldn't expect much different. Because the devil's gotten a lot of traction with it. Why would he give up this great, effective plan of his? But friends, that's all the more reason that I encourage you, I implore you. Stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-B. L E. Psalm 139, 13 to 14. For you formed me my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched your arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Friends, that's the God I want to serve. Have you not known, Isaiah 40, verse 28, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. Romans 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. God's fingerprints are everywhere. Psalm 121, first two verses, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. How can we stand on the promises of God? Because in all of you is a reason for the power of God's creative ability and authority to make and create out of nothing. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if I can look in nature, if I can look in animals, if I can look in all these natural realms and worlds and see the fingerprints of God, then I can claim the other promises too. I can take them to the bank because this is a God that loves me, that cares for me, has a plan and purpose for my life. And I can pray to him anytime. 
and he'll lead me, he'll guide me, he'll encourage me. I am safe in his care and provision. Revelation 14, 7, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. I don't know about you, but my faith has found a resting place, not in a man-made creed. My soul is resting on the word, the living word of God. Salvation in my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. I need no other evidence. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and rose again for me. Long time ago, those words were written to that hymn. And we're not going to sing that now because I didn't plan far enough in advance to tell these musicians we're going to do that song. We're going to sing our theme song, which is also very powerful. In fact, it was the song that we sang when we went out as student missionaries. From this place, from this institution, it got me choked up then, it gets me choked up now. But friends, we are living in a world that needs to know the beautiful truths that we have, the life-changing, life-transforming truths that we have. And so I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, I want to implore you, stand on the Word of God. Stand on His truth when it comes to creation versus evolution. Because if not, it's just a matter of time that all the blocks will fall. By God's grace, may we stand in His Word. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.